We're taking a few weeks to look at uh, parables Jesus told. He told over 20 in uh, his earthly ministry, and we're, we're looking at the ones especially that mention the kingdom. And what continues to interest me about the parables is that they're such gentle introductions to the things that Jesus was teaching. Um, I think that most of them, especially the kingdom parables perhaps, could be appropriated by just about any self-help teacher worth their salt. And by the way, I'm not anti-self-help. For administration, for organization, for writing, the rest, there are all sorts of topics I enjoy hearing self-help speakers and authors talk about. They've generally come upon a system that is transferable to someone else and they're helpful. And the reason I say that out loud to you is because the parables can seem challenging to an Orthodox Christian because the gospel is only implied in most of them. And so you read the parable and you're like, okay, there's a point to the story, but it's not the full gospel. But it's a point that Jesus was so interested in making that he told a really compelling story. Which is the other reason I mentioned the self-help teachers. Just on its own merit, isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago a carpenter told a whole bunch of stories that are still quoted in the newspapers every day? The Good Samaritan. The Prodigal. Not this particular one about the minas. They're like, what? most people don't know what a mina is. But he told these incredibly compelling stories. Um, in many ways, they serve as an introduction or a gentle movement for those following him then and now into what he's going to teach later. If we only had the I am statements of Jesus in the first three Gospels, and then especially in the book of John. I am the resurrection of the life, in the life. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the resurrection in the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. If we only had those things, the exclusivity of Jesus would be so pushy feeling. If we only have the parables, we don't understand the exclusivity of Jesus. So I think the Gospels work together in that sense. Years ago, uh, and continuing to this day, there are scholars that are not followers of Jesus, but very interested in the historical Jesus. One of those movements was called the Jesus Seminar. And they sat down, I kid you not, and they had like lottery balls, different colors. So like, there's a range of colors. So it was like yellow, green, black, purple, mauve, whatever. And they went through all the things that Jesus said, and they voted on whether those statements were really likely that he said them, or really unlikely that he said them. And some of the things that Orthodox Christians understand that we would repeat in the Apostles' Creed and things like that, those came up as less likely that Jesus actually said them in these erroneous scholars' opinions. But the parables, they thought, were very likely. And I bring that up because for Orthodox Christians, a parable can be challenging Because it's just a part of the message. It's something Jesus wanted to teach us very clearly, so he told it in a compelling story. But it doesn't tell the whole gospel. If you have your Bible, we're looking in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Just before this parable is a story that you might have sung about as a kid. The story of Zacchaeus. During this moment, the disciples are very much expecting Jesus to politically and religiously uh, bring in the kingdom and militarily. So that's going to be alluded to in the first verse here. As they heard these things, 
Zacchaeus, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to, was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. For our purposes, let's call a mina $15,000. Okay? Somewhat equivalent. Some of you are like, that's not three months wages. I make way more. And some of you are like, that'd be the best three months of my life. But just as on average. Okay. Engage in business until I come. But his citizens, different than the servants, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. Turned $15,000 into $150,000. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas, 15,000 to 75,000. 60,000, 75, math people. Thank you. Some of you didn't get that either, and you're like, what? And others were like, how is he even confused? We'll talk about that. All of our callings are different. (laughs) We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. Nothing in the parable would indicate that, but that's this guy's excuse. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I know you're all not, you know, Bible people. You're not pastor. That's funny. (laughs) Of course he knows that that guy has ten minas. He said, give it to the one with ten minas. And they're like, Lord, he has ten minas. Meaning, really? It's all right that you don't think it's funny. Maybe if I preach it really well, you'll understand how funny it is by the end. And he said to them, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So some self-help speakers wouldn't be able to tie in that last verse and explain (laughs) for their purposes. So this is a kingdom parable. And the king talks to his servants. He's aware of his citizens. He leaves for a while and he comes back. And I don't know how the kingdom language, how that feels to you. Are you comfortable with the kingdom language? I'm much more comfortable with a representative democracy like the one we have. And those existed, by the way, in the Mediterranean. Um, There are tetrarchs and governors and magistrates and Caesars. And Jesus chose king language. And the reason is, throughout the scripture, he's reminding us that um, 
following him is about allegiance. It's not about our, as much about our agreement with what he is and is not doing. It's about our allegiance. That's why he uses the kingdom language. Would you pray with me as we explore this parable a little bit? Father, would you help us? Would you help us to see the point of this story that Jesus told? That we might grow up in our love for you and for neighbor. Help us with the challenging parts of the text to understand your Holy Spirit's guiding of us. Bless us, Lord, with a deeper understanding of you and your character. Amen. So the king gives. So this whole thing is working as a metaphor. Um, And he gives ten of his servants three months' wages. This is an interesting metaphor for you and I, that you and I are actually better able to understand than the disciples. Because you and, whether, whether we profess faith in Jesus or not, we are aware that a man lived 2,000 years ago, carpenter from Nazareth. And those of us that are following him believe in the things that we profess in the Apostles' Creed, that he died on the cross, that that reconciles us to God by faith in him. But he has not come back yet. So the middle of this parable, you and I are living in. Jesus has come, he has beat sin and death, and yet we're still in the presence of sin and death. And we're waiting. That's not the point of the parable, that's just the setting of the parable. The point of the parable is that God, the king, gives to his people. And I'm deliberately using vague language because Jesus is kind of using vague vague language. He gives them three months wages, and they're supposed to engage in business. What kind of business? Just engage in business. Your circumstances. Christians like to call this uh, calling. What are you called to do and to be? And the beginning of calling is, is identity. You're called a son or a daughter of God because of the work of Christ. But then what do we do? What do we do with our words? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our money? What do we do with our neighbors? And for each of us, that's different. There's some individualness to that. I have three brothers and three sisters. Most of you do not have three brothers and three sisters. Some of you have more. Some of you have less. I doubt any of them are covered in as many marriages as my six, but maybe. You can ask me later. That'll be a fun conversation. Or not. It's not in my notes. Focus. (laughs) So what Christians like to call it is your calling. What's your calling as a human being? Man or woman. And I want to give you a couple of overlapping categories that will never turn into a good self-help talk because they're not cool. They don't tell you about how to accentuate the power of you, but I believe they're true and they'll last. You and I determine what we are to do as followers of Christ, as human beings, by assessing in a couple of ways. One, just by thinking about it. Two, by talking to our friends. And three, in prayer. Those are not three categories, by the way. Those are the way we engage the three categories. The three categories are gifts, affections, and circumstances. You've all seen some generations value one over the other. I think the greatest generation probably understood the importance of circumstances far better than my Gen X did. Gen X really into gifts and kind of into affections. My brother's generation, the one after me, much more into affections and gifts. I'm saying it's all of those things. 
I really like woodworking. It's an affection of mine. It's not a gift. (laughs) I have made chairs and tables, and you can set things on them and even people, but they don't look that great. I really enjoy the sport of basketball. I have some gift for it. Not some, some, some. I have a very great affection for it, but what's my circumstance? I am six feet tall, which is better than five six for basketball, but it's not six nine. I would really like it if I was six nine. Some others in the room would not um, point to my wife. And so in my assessment of how important is basketball, honestly, I'm looking at my gifts and my affections and my circumstances. This overlaps with, with the job that you have. This overlaps with the family that you have. This overlaps with your church. This overlaps with the way that you spend your time outside of all those things. Jesus is teaching that every one of his servants has been given a calling, which is a mixture of their gifts and circumstances and affections, that they prayerfully consider, that they talk about with their friends, and they find a way to engage. They find a way to uh, use those gifts for the glory of God, for the love of neighbor, and even to take care of themselves. You're included in that. It's not about you, but you're in that. That's the purpose of our existence, to glorify God, love neighbor, and even take care of ourselves. Does this sound harsh to you? Does this parable sound harsh to you? Thank you, Gwen. The third servant. Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Nothing in the, nothing in the parable would, would indicate that he should have been afraid, but will grant him his feelings. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. That's a question. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Take the mina from him and give it to the one that has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Still not that funny? That's all right. right. (laughs) I want us to to notice for a minute that there is a harsh, at least a harsh tone to this. Now it's brought up by the servant, not by the king, not by the Jesus figure in the parable. But it's okay for you and I to be pressed a little bit on this. Throughout the scriptures, God presents himself in a variety of ways. Because you and I are limited in our vantage point. We're limited in our knowledge of him. We're limited by our imaginations. We're limited by our intellect and circumstances. And so I like as a pastor to describe God as omnipotent. God describes himself as a rock. Which one's more theologically accurate to say? I like to describe God as omniscient, as all-knowing. I like that term. It seems to encompass things. In Exodus chapter 19, God says he is like an eagle. Under the shade of his wings, he protects his people. Especially in the parables, Jesus will be pushy with the points he's making. In the chapter before this, he tells an even more disorienting parable if you have to place him in the parable because he's trying to push on us. What is he trying to push on us? That he's a harsh man? No, nothing in the parable actually indicates that the king is harsh. But it does indicate that sometimes we will perceive him that way 
And then what? What's the problem? The problem is not how we perceive him as much as it is our response to what we've been given to do nothing. It's a bad response. That's the point of the parable. So this is not the only description of the king. We have the entire gospels and the very human and very godly face of Jesus confronting his friends and his enemies and loving. But we also have this one where Jesus is using very compelling storytelling to tell us that his followers respond. The king gives to his followers and he expects a response from them. He expects that the men and women who are following him are different. They take their words and their money and their gifts, circumstances, and affections, and they use those as best they can, circumstances, to glorify him and to love neighbor. He fully expects a response. And so whatever harshness you or I don't perceive, what's more important is the point, which is that those who know the king inevitably respond to what they've been given. Your and my bank accounts should look different if we're a follower of Christ. And, and we have limits. You guys know about the state budget deficit like, we're, we're all probably going to have less disposable income this year. You know that, right? Taxes are going to go up, right? So I understand circumstantial. I'm not trying to push on you to give here, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus. I think you should find other uh, charities or things that really stir your heart to give to. But those that are following Jesus, absolutely, our bank accounts should look different when and where they can. Some of us circumstantially are not able to do that, especially in Connecticut. Our words should be different. You and I, our words are for love. Uh, Gosh, this sounds like a Hallmark card, doesn't it? But it's true. And love doesn't mean you're always nice, by the way. I think I told three different parents this week, the line between uh, enabling and tough love, it's a moving target. For a five-year-old or a 35-year-old child. But your words as a follower of Jesus are for love. Your actions, what you do with your spare time. And listen, I know you don't have a ton of spare time. Sometimes pastors get up and they preach on this sermon. They're so passionate and they make it sound like the point of the gospel of Jesus is that you be tired. That's not it. The fourth commandment is take a day off. You and I have got to learn how to rest and worship and eat and enjoy rest. And in our spare time, we've got to learn to serve him here and other places. The uh, Reformed tradition, the about 500-year-old theological tradition that we are indebted to as Presbyterians, calls this... It says that salvation is by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. The New Testament writer James says that faith without works is dead. And his point is not that our good works with our money or our time or extra energy, that doesn't save us. But those who are saved inevitably respond to God. 
with our money and with our time and with our words. Like the servant with the ten that made ten minus. Like the servant that made the five minus. In the midst of that, by the way, do you notice that Jesus is kind of reminding us of reality? Do you ever look at our worship team and think, gosh, I wish I had some of those gifts? Even just half of one of those musicians. And of course they learned that over time. It's not like they were just born that way. Do you ever look at other people's lives and think, their life is bearing so much more fruit than mine. They're so much more successful than I am. They seem to be so much better able to handle their cultural moment than I am. That's not how it probably formulates in your mind because you're not, I don't know, your words don't appear like my words. But you look at other people and you're jealous of their gifts or their circumstances or even what they care about. Jesus is acknowledging that. That one servant was able to make ten times and one servant was able to make five. Your and my circumstances are different. Your and my affections are different. Your and my gifts are different. When we do the nine o'clock service, uh, you have to adjust the volume when Dave Simpson is leading because when he sings, it's beautiful and loud. So you turn it down. When he's talking, you have to bump it back up. Dave's a good speaker, but he's an incredible singer. I'm a little jealous. I only hit the note E when I sing. I sing louder and softer and that's it. So I love when it's loud in here and I can just sing along. I wish I had the gifts of the deacons of our church. But you don't want me in the kitchen. That's not the best use of our time. I'm not bad in the kitchen. I can do some things in there. But I love that Jesus is acknowledging that people have different gifts. And some people's gifts seem to work better in the world until he returns than others. And that's okay. Jesus was a very realistic teacher. At the same time, I want to point something out. Um, that's in this text and it's in a lot of texts and I was just in between services was just talking with one of our elders and he said this is a new idea to him and if it is for you also that's okay we can we can learn this together you're not going to like this as an anecdote to the sermon but it's in the text Jesus is skipping over talking about heaven he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth okay so I'm going to try and and lay this out for you because it's in the text but we're not going to spend a whole new sermon talking about it because it's 1134 Jesus is describing the time that you and I live in, where he has come and intervened. We have been given gifts, circumstances, and affections with which to glorify him and love neighbor. When he returns, when heaven and earth collide, described in Revelation 21, there is more to that kingdom. And in that kingdom, some will be given more responsibility than others. And you and I are like, that doesn't seem fair. And I think from our vantage point, it's okay to say, I'm not sure how that's going to be fair. That some men and women who followed Christ are going to be over ten cities in the new heavens and the new earth. And some are going to be over five. I don't think it's going to bother us because we're all going to be with Jesus. The new heavens and new earth... Jesus spoke about it frequently. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that we will get to judge the angels there. In Isaiah chapter 60, it says that the followers of Jesus will judge the kings of the earth as they bring their wealth into the new heavens and the new earth. 
So the Christian life describes the with God life today for you and I. It describes that we get to spend eternity with God that begins with heaven, but it does not end with heaven. Heaven is important. Philippians 3 says our citizenship with God is in heaven because that's where he's sitting. But there is a significant next step. It's when the heaven descends and heaven and earth collide. We're with Jesus at a feast. And there, men and women are given responsibility based upon how they responded with their gifts, circumstances, and affections here. They don't receive more salvation, but they do receive, according to the text, more cities. And we just expect God to work all that out in ways that we can understand when we're in the kingdom. And I expect most of the people that we think will be given a lot of cities won't. And a lot of the people that you and I notice now will be there, but they will not be the ones over ten cities. I think it will be those who showed neighbor love with consistency and grace and tender mercy. So if the new heavens and the new earth are a new idea for you, um, I apologize if that's a disorienting teaching, and yet it comes up again and again and again in Scripture. Because of the teaching of the 70s, 80s, and 90s by Hal Lindsey and um, Tim LaHaye and others that taught us to focus on the actual moment that Jesus reappears, we miss Scripture, which talks, we miss some of Scripture, which talks much more expansively about what happens after he returns. Such as in Luke chapter 19, that the followers of Jesus will be over cities in the new kingdom. And now those of you that, are, that paid close attention while I was reading the scripture are wondering if I'm going to leave out verse 27. You're like, he's just not going to talk about that because it's rough. And I really didn't like it when Bible teachers used to do that when I was a kid. Something real challenging in the text. You're like, can you explain this? As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, that's a fun text. I'll probably use that for the benediction. (laughs) Or not. Here's the thing. This is called judgment, not the ugly judgment when humans call other humans less than human. This is the judgment of God about the violence of men and women throughout history. If you and I have a God who doesn't judge, he's either not God or he doesn't care. If you have been hurt, you know that. You know that we need a God who will set the world to rights. If you have ever watched the news, you have been troubled. And if God doesn't judge, he either isn't God or he doesn't care. And so the fact that verse 27 doesn't sound very cool and we're not going to put it on a bumper sticker should not distract us from the fact that in our hearts and minds we need to know that not only is God powerful, He loves us, He is going to set the world to rights. It comes up throughout Scripture and it's true and you and I rely on it. That is the difference between advice, religion, and faith. We are not particularly comfortable with judgment, and yet we desperately need it. 
I would not have tacked this verse onto this compelling parable, but Jesus did to remind us not only does he love us and like us, but he will heal all things. We wait for that moment. And in the meantime, we do the best we can with our gifts and circumstances and affections. Loving him and loving one another. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us? Would you help us to hear your voice of love teaching us to respond to the work of your son Jesus with our words, with our checkbooks, with our hands. Bless us, Lord, as we seek to follow you for our own joy and to glorify you.